Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a fire-breathing podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 141, How to Train Your Podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Y- y'all, we are talking about How to Train Your Dragon this week, um, a series that went from one of my Dark Horse trilogies that I pitched to everybody whenever anyone's <laughs> talking about like what's a good trilogy because trilogies tend to flop at the end. Um, at least they did through a good part of the 20 knots and 2010s uh, <clears throat> matrix. Um, and, and what be, what I could pitch is like one of the most solid trilogies in existence um, after like Lord of the Rings and stuff. Uh, How to Train Your Dragons, definitely up there. It's just like a solid trilogy. And that was my pitch to everybody. Uh, yeah. But I have never read the books, never read the books until now. Um, this last month, while we've been prepping for this episode, I bought the box set and I was actually on vacation for a good chunk of the month. So I didn't, I lost out a lot of time to, um, uh, to read because I was, I was hiking with my dog in Oregon. Uh, oh, you weren't on the reading type of vacation. I was like, you should have just gone no, through them all. <laughs> I wish that would have been fun. Uh, but I was either hiking with my dog or resting after hiking with my dog. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Yeah. And, and driving a lot of driving. Uh, but I did read about nine and a half. I'm halfway through the 10th book of 12 right now in the past two weeks since I've been back on vacation. And they are, it, at the, if that rate tells you anything, they are amazing. Everything like eight-year-old Alex dreamed of when he saw How to Train Your Dragon on his classmate's desk. And he was like, that book looks cool. It has a dragon on it. I want one. Um, that's that's what uh, that's exactly what I got out of the books. There's a lot more variation in them than you'd expect. There's some young reader stuff. There's some advanced reader stuff. It's all very cool. Highly recommend. But today we're going to be talking about the movies that are based off of that series and um, became the animated blockbusters uh, created by DreamWorks. So before we talk about the books and the movies and all that, before we dive into them, Jonathan has a presentation for us on the history of fire-breathing dragons. Or did they breathe fire? I don't know. Jonathan, did they? Honestly, that's not even part of my research, so thanks for throwing that in there. Yeah, terrible segue. Uh, <laughs> I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. But we are talking about dragons. All right. So, yes, uh, thank you for attending my TED Talk. Um, I'm just... I love mythology, and so I just wanted to do a deep dive on dragons real quick before we get into the stories. And there's actually some fun overlap here. Um, So the word dragon comes uh, ultimately through several ancient languages from uh, the Latin draco, meaning huge serpent, uh, which also comes from Greek dracon, meaning serpent or giant sea fish. Traditionally, uh, dragons have often been water creatures uh, that also fly, and that kind of has evolved over the over the many many years. Um, there's also a Greek word, derkomai, that kind of is wrapped up in there, which means I see. Um, and a lot of times, dragon mythology uh, it kind of has this sense of something with a a sharp or deadly gaze, um, which comes up in some specific instances later on. Um, but draconic creatures, dragons show up in nearly every single culture on Earth. It is almost universal, um, which makes it very hard to pinpoint where they actually come from. Um, a lot of people just say it's kind of just a human instinct to be scared of snakes, um, which makes sense. Um, snakes are on pretty much every continent and uh, they kill people. So makes sense to be scared of them and just make them big and scary and tell stories about them. And put them on um, a plane. <laughs> more, I am sick and tired. Okay. Uh, so some famous, very early dragons. 
there is the biblical Leviathan, which is uh, described in the book of Job. Satan is also sometimes described as a dragon. Um, in Egypt, in Egyptian mythology, there is Apep, uh, and the setting of the sun is said to be Ra descending to the underworld to fight Apep. Um, and this one is interesting. In Chinese folklore, the book Zhao Zuan depicts a man named Dong Fu who loved and tamed dragons. And dragon imagery and stuff was typically associated with the emperor. Um, but Dong Fu loved and tamed dragons because he could understand dragons' wills. And the emperor gave him and his house the name Huanlong, which means dragon raiser which is pretty appropriate for the stories we're going to be talking about today. Um, of course, there is the Hydra from Greek, uh, the Greek Hercules myth. There are several other Greek uh, serpents and dragons. But closer to our story in the Norse mythology, um, there are many dragons in the Norse mythology, as you would expect. There's Nidhogg, who gnaws the roots of the world tree in uh, Nordic um, cosmology. There's like trees that are the pillars of different worlds, nine worlds. I don't know how all that works. If you're familiar um, <laughs> with Marvel's story, you might have heard some of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you'll get some of that through some popular culture. Um, and speaking of Thor, there's also a uh, Norse mythology where Thor defeats the dragon, oh gosh, Jormungandr. Jormungandr, <laughs> the world serpent. Yes, and uh, he thinks he killed him. He may not. Some say that Jormungandr is still uh, roaming the depths of the sea. Um, there's also, importantly, Fafnir, which uh, is famously depicted in Wagner's Ring Cycle, which is from one of the old Norse mythologies. Um, Fafnir steals uh, a golden ring and uh, turns into a dragon, which may sound familiar. Uh, this A lot of inspiration for Lord of the Rings and Smaug comes from these stories. Um, there's also similarities to uh, with Smaug to the uh, the dragon in Beowulf, who as ser a uh, servant steals a cup from the dragon in Beowulf, which I don't think has a name, and uh, that dragon goes on a rampage. Um, and then in the Middle Ages in Europe, the image of the dragon started to kind of formalize into more of what we in the West uh, would recognize um, in its uh, both characteristics and uh, just visual aesthetics. Um, so dragons are typically thought of as greedy, gluttonous, dangerous, um, kind of foes to be defeated. Uh, there's a story Vain. of Saint, <laughs> yeah, there's a story of, uh, Saint George and the dragon, which is a really early, um, uh, kind of heraldic story, uh, where Saint George, um, goes to a town that's being threatened by a dragon and basically blackmails them into Christianity by saying that he'll kill the dragon if they all convert. Uh, so that works. Um, and then the her heraldic imagery started to formalize the image of dragons and got really nitpicky. Uh, so in heraldic imagery, which is the, the images that you would see on shields and on armor and stuff like that uh, for warriors and for houses of uh, nobility, a dragon technically has four legs. So kind of what you would think of two wings, four legs. Um, whereas a, uh, oh gosh, weaver, yeah, a wyvern has two legs, very specifically. Then there's also a cockatrice, which is kind of like a dragon and a chicken mixed, uh, which ah, is, yes, the dragon <laughs> of mythical mornings, which is said to come when a rooster lays an egg on a dunghill. These, some of these start to sound like a joke, but they're real. Um, I mean, they're not That's real. That's a lot creatures. of heraldry. 
<laughs> there's a lot of heraldry, yeah. Um, and then there's a basilisk, which is when a toad hatches an egg laid by a cockatrice uh, in a very specific uh, place. And the, the basilisk and the cockatrice both have the deadly gaze, where if they look at you in the eyes, then you turn to stone. Um, okay, so that's but what's, where what elemental types are in. these Pokemon? <laughs> uh, have they evolved? Apparently the basilisk is an evolved form of the cockatrice. It sounds like it, yeah. <laughs> um, so then moving on into more modern depictions, we have uh, Lewis Carroll in the 1800s was parodying dragons with the Jabberwocky, uh, which kind of looked like a nerdy professor uh, and a dragon kind of symbolizing children's fear of their teachers and also how humiliating they think of them. Um, of course, there's Smaug from Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which also, uh, well, technically from The Hobbit, but all in the Middle-earth mythology. Um, and that kind of has inspired a lot of modern fantasy. It's kind of become a staple of the fantasy genre at this point. So you have dragons in Harry Potter, obviously Dungeons and Dragons, A Song of Ice and Fire, also which became Game of Thrones. Um, and then more recently, as it, dragons have worked their way into children's literature and stuff like we're talking about today, dragons kind of evolved from a foe to be defeated and they will often appear as more protectors and uh, just kind of a powerful ally for the vulnerable, which is something that we're definitely going to see kind of that the whole evolution of that myth into that in these uh, stories today. Um, and we could do a breakdown on Vikings, but we're not really going to because Vikings are almost completely different than what we're talking about in these movies. Yeah. Yeah. This is a very, um, this is this is very much re removed from any historical fact for Vikings. We can give you a background on dragons because it's mythological there. It's a mythological yeah. background that we're giving for another version of dragon mythology. But, you know, this is very much a mythological version of Vikings, um, very loosely based off of, of real Vikings. Uh, there would not so, be so much uh, family concern, I don't think, in the actual Viking world. No. <laughs> no, they would, maybe, it would maybe be clan concern, but yeah, <laughs> there's some, be, there's some be, particularly healthy family vibes in these movies that would not probably yeah, have there's been a lot historically of accurate here that doesn't jive with like, uh, dark ages, family values, pillaging uh, and plundering for the best wife you can find. Yeah, basically. Uh, but anyway, this became, <laughs> this all leads up to, uh, how to train your dragon, which is a book series written by Cressida Cowell. Uh, and it, uh, started off with a young reader book, Hiccup the Seasick Viking in 2001. That isn't actually part of the main series. It's just a young reader book about a seasick young Viking named Hiccup. Uh, but that launched into the main series, starting off with How to Train Your Dragon. And all of the titles kind of sound like that, like How to Be a Pirate, How to Steal um, a Dragon's Jewel, How to Break a Dragon's Heart, stuff like that. Um, and there's 12 books in the series, and the series ran from 2003 to 2015 so actually overlapped a little bit with um the books or with the films themselves and that kind of shows in hmm. the style of uh the books that were released um the ending of the series being much more mature and i think following kind of like a grander scale almost like the movies did um but though how how did those books become movies well after the success of over the hedge i don't know if you guys remember that movie from 2006 uh produced by bonnie arnold um, 
producer Bonnie Arnold, who was the producer on Over the Hedge, focused on bringing those books to the big screen. That was her new big project. And eventually brought Chris Sanders and Don, uh, Dean Dubois, 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 I don't know how you say that. Say it all the um, ways and we'll cut the right one in there. There you go. Um, joined the project. And at that point, the project was basically almost exactly following the first book, like plot point, point for plot point, very close to the text. Um, and having read that first book, it's a good book, but it isn't really Hollywood blockbuster material it's not it's like a kid's movie it's not it's not quite scaled up enough to be a full-fledged blockbuster you underestimate hollywood's ability to make three movies out of practically nothing uh yeah it's um they definitely do that this is true uh, and they were definitely going to try, but uh, after Sanders and DeBlois came in, they uh, they aged up the protagonist from like 11 to like 16. Um, Toothless became much more powerful in the movies. Toothless is this very big, powerful Night Fury. He's a very rare, dangerous dragon. And the Toothless in the books also calls himself a very rare dragon. He speaks, by the way, in Dragonese. That's a whole thing. Um, and only Hiccup can speak to the dragons in Dragonese. Um but he's he's a very small, very common dragon. He's actually a runt, and he is literally toothless. Uh, he he's kind of an. He, at first, he seems like an embarrassment as a dragon, but he turns out to have much more to him in terms of his character, and that's kind of uh, the point. One of the points in the book, but in the movies, toothless the dragon with the big. heart of gold. The gold uh, isn't something you first. steal. He, it's on the inside, toothless. Yeah, he grew, he grows up a lot over the course of the movie. See, he starts off as quite the annoying little shit, but he he grows up quite a bit. Um, but he uh, but in the movies, obviously, he's a big, scary, powerful dragon, and we get thrown into this big like, um, you know, high stakes plot very quickly. Whereas in the books, you don't have that, so they kind of scaled it up essentially, right? They made it like worthy of the millions of dollars. Uh, they, they wanted to make the plot big enough to justify the millions of dollars being poured into it, and they did. Um, they also brought in Roger Deakins as a cinematography consultant on the film, and if you watch the movies, his influence is fairly obvious on, across all three, and you can tell that How to Train Your Dragon has a very majestic, uh, well-shot look to it that feels a little different than a lot of the other DreamWorks uh, series um, in their DreamWorks canon. Um, and we should also note that uh, the composer for the movies, John Powell, um, who's also done the music for Face Off, the Bourne movies, Solo, uh, The Italian Job, Kung Fu Panda, Ants, Shrek, The Road to El Dorado, and Chicken Run. Uh, this was his first, uh, his first uh, piece of work that garnered Academy recognition uh, from the award show that shall not be named on this podcast. Uh, but I just want to throw that out there too. The music is really fantastic across all three movies. It's really fantastic in the first one. So there's a lot of talent in this in the series in the series, um, and uh, they really there was a lot of love that went into taking it from a kids book series to a uh, a large scale blockbuster trilogy. Um, but uh, let's take a closer look at those movies individually and who was working on them, and then we'll jump into. Uh, talking about those movies more in depth, Jonathan. All right, so we're starting off with How to Train Your Dragon from 2010, directed by Chris Sanders and Dean DeBlois, starring Jay Baruchel, Gerard Butler, Craig Ferguson, America Ferrara, uh, Jonah Hill, Christopher Mintz, 
Plassey, TJ Miller, and Kristen Wiig. And then How to Train Your Dragon 2 from 2014, directed by Dean Dubois. Uh, or adding on to the existing cast, Kate Blanchett, Jimon Honsu, and Kit Harrington. And finally, How to Train Your Dragon Hidden World from 2019, Dean Dubois, adding to the cast F. Murray Abraham, who now mm-hmm. I can only see snorting cocaine. Yeah, pretty much. All right, Jason, take it away with How to Train Your Dragon from 2010. How to Train Your Dragon from 2010. In the village of Burke, Vikings fight dragons to protect their way of life. That's the way it is. But for the chieftain's son, Hiccup, fighting dragons isn't something he's good at. He's an oddball who invents contraptions and doesn't like hurting other living things. But on a fateful day, Hiccup meets an injured dragon, Toothless, a fearsome night fury. Together, the misfits find a unique friendship that could change the war between dragons and Vikings forever. All right, Jonathan, I have seen this series multiple times. Um, I know uh, your wife is familiar with the series, but have you watched any of this series before? Yeah, I had I had seen them all. I think okay, I, had, okay. I had recently got to the third one, but I had seen the others uh, previously. But yeah, yeah, I'm definitely familiar. Gotcha. OK, OK, OK. I uh, just wanted to make sure to see where we were starting off with these. Um, we well, did sit is... down and do and do a marathon and watch all three of them in a row. So that was very, very fun. If you well, have the chance, go for it. Considering that you have regularly done the extended series LOTR. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was a cake. Lord, Lord of the Rings ones. This is nothing compared to that. Um, I will say I really love this movie. It's one of my favorite animated movies, uh, probably particularly the first one. Um, I love that we're thrown in so quickly to the story um, and we start in this big battle. And it's starting in the middle of things is always a good way to jump into exposition. But the mm-hmm. exposition in, in the world building in this movie is fairly is very smooth. It's very effective and it's not overcomplicated, which I really appreciate. Yeah. They don't try to give you this big backstory for everything. They're just like, we're Vikings. Those are dragons. Dragons eat our our, uh, our flocks of sheep and we try to stop them. And it's that's essentially like, a monster movie at the beginning. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, that's very much it. They give you a little extra sauce when something's really important. Um, like they're, when he mentions the... He's listing all the kinds of dragons, and he's like, and then there's the dangerous night fury. Yeah, and yeah, you're like, yeah. okay, well, that's going to be important. Um, yeah, the narration t- does aid the exposition because we're getting to know him and how kind of insecure but also courageous he is and wants to be, and we're getting information about the world and the types of dragons that are all going to come back very shortly. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we get most of the exposition actually before we meet Hiccup. So where you you're kind of, and that's kind of the whole point of Hiccup, um, is that he's the most non-Viking Viking you'll ever meet, um, and in in the I'll say in the book series and the origin of his name is that uh, he is an accident. He's a hiccup in the line of Vikings. Uh, uh, I was wondering about that. They don't they don't touch on that at all in the movie. They don't. They don't. And there's there's like a big like ancestry thing of like because uh, he's he's it's the pretty chief hard son. though to to just like 
briefly touch on if you're trying to cut it down for the movie. Well, that's yeah, exactly his name means he's an accident. Yeah, I think that's, that's exactly uh, one of the reasons why I like this movie. Because looking at the books, there is all this lore there that you can get into if you have the space you have in a book. But the mm. movie's like, we don't have time for that. So we're just gonna, it's not super important to the plot right now. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna move on. So we set it up um, and then we have, uh, we have the exposition and we smash into this really like clumsy, awkward, a teenager who just doesn't look like a Viking at all, except that he's wearing a Viking vest. It's pretty much it. He doesn't look like anyone else in the village, not even kind of close to his dad, Stoic the Vast. Hear his name in Trimble. Ugh, ugh. Um, that's a thing they do in the book as well. Uh, but he's, I will say, for an awkward uh, protagonist, he's one of the least cringy awkward protagonists who I've, I've yeah. seen in a movie that kind of tries to do the awkward protagonist thing. Cause even though he is awkward, he's very genuine. Yeah. Um, a lot of the times an awkward protagonist it just comes across like they're trying too hard and hiccup normally it just comes across like he's trying his best. <laughs> he's just not up to it uh, in a lot of ways. And he's, he's very endearing really quickly. Yeah. And along the same lines, the side characters aren't the worst. They're still not great, but there are some really, I, I think kids movies have been on a really bad track of just making side characters that are one note. If not, if not, well, not just one note, but if not literally, uh, <laughs> mentally unstable, then pretty close. And it's, it's refreshing to not see that. They're all, like you said, just kind of awkward, but in that kind of, teenager way where some of them are awkward because they have too much swagger or some of them are too insecure or whatever. Well, I'll tell you to that extent too, I think one of the effects and one of the things that I think, uh, will basically, we'll have to just repeat ourselves cause we always do this. We get to overall notes before all overall notes, uh, that makes the how to train your dragon series. So good is the way they went about adapting. Cause those, those side characters you're talking about, even though they don't get much screen time and they don't get a lot of backstory, they do have backstories and they're very fleshed out characters mm. in, um, in the book series. Um, and the movie, I think, does a very good job when uh, the, I think the directors, Sanders and DeBlois, um, were, I really hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. We're going to sound like assholes. Um, Let's call him <laughs> Dean. D? Yeah, we'll call Dean. him D. Um, when Chris and Dean, you know, our buddies, uh, were writing this movie, they uh, they did a really good job of capturing the essence of the character without trying to reestablish the character all over again um, mm -hmm. in the script. So, you know, Snotlout, I mean, the really arrogant guy, uh, is in the books, he's Hiccup's cousin. Uh, okay. And he knows that if Hiccup fails, he'll inherit the uh, the chieftain of the tribe. Um, and so he's always oh, trying he's to sabotage. Yeah, he's he's always trying to sabotage um, Hiccup and stuff like that. And he's he's very much the bully. Um, and there's still a lot of that in the Snotlout in the movies. Um, I will say when we get to the later movies, the side characters do downgrade quite a bit. Uh, Fish yeah. legs uh, in in the in uh, the books is Hiccup's best friend and a very important character. And <laughs> a lot of it, he's kind of like the Ron Weasley essentially of the book series. And you still get a lot of that in, um, 
in the movie, but again, not quite as much. And I think is the reason the, for is that is he the 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 nerdy one, or is he the the twin? He's the nerdy one. Yeah. Okay. The one there, who basically has his D and D manual with him at all times. Yes. Okay. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And he is he is that nerdy in the uh, in the books as well too. He has absolutely no uh, no Viking skills. In fact, there's a whole. I, uh, I feel like a lot of this is just going to be comparing the books to the movies. But <laughs> it, through that process, you see like the adaptation and where these came from. Um, so I think that's kind of worthwhile. Uh, you see. So in the books. Uh, I guess spoiler warning. Fishlegs is a runt, and that means that huh. he was so weak when he was born that these these Viking tribes have like a Sparta policy, where if a baby's too weak when it's born, they just uh, put it on something Expose that floats them. and ship it out to sea. Uh, and actually, Hiccup was a runt too, and he was supposed to be exposed as well, but his father said no, um, and is technically a criminal and an outcast for doing that. But no one's found out about it. Um, so uh so yeah fish lakes has a whole story and you kind of get like enough of that uh for these these uh side characters to feel like fleshed out people but they don't incorporate those stories into uh the plot of the movie yeah Uh, which i think is worthwhile because the plot they end up telling is is quite good of um uh, where we kind of have the setup of two outcasts um hiccup a viking who can't viking and a Night Fury who, one, is kind of lonely and set apart from the dragon world because he's the only one of his kind. Um, and two, at the start of the movie, injured and can't dragon. Suddenly he's a yeah. dragon who can't dragon. Um, and so suddenly we have a dragon who doesn't fit in with dragons and a, a Viking who doesn't fit in with Vikings. And we, uh, we, we put them together and they find a commonality in how different they are and that's a one a great story for a kid's movie and two in, the way they tell it in this movie is incredibly heartwarming and endearing i did not find it cheesy in the least i loved every minute of it yeah i mean it's it's almost the um it's it's really similar to something like a an abandoned puppy kind of story or um or something along the lines of um uh E.T., where it's it's the outcast or the the one who doesn't fit and then bridging the gap between the uh, the animosity, the the prejudice between the two. Um, And so there's that's and and again, given the history of the the legend of and myth of dragons, I think the first movie kind of does the whole flipping the myth thing within its plot. It starts with dragons as the the really dangerous enemy and then turns and and becomes the dragons being the protector and being the ally. Uh, And then throughout the rest of the movies, we're going to see how um, they almost just become a symbol of um, uh, things that we rely on too much. Um, and stuff like that, which we'll talk about when we get to the next couple of movies. But it's interesting mm-hmm. to see here how we transition the the myth right off the bat. And then from then on, the dragons are something that is protecting the heroes and that the heroes end up having to protect in the next couple of movies. Um, but they're, they're allies as opposed to the tradition. Yeah, there's definitely like a story or like a bit of a... Of a um Oh, what's the word? A moral uh, built into the storytelling here that goes along the lines of something like 
Um, two people who are fighting probably have more in common than they're willing to admit. And if they just work together, they could probably solve their problems uh, yeah. a lot more effectively than if they bickered over resources. And that's exactly <laughs> what happens in the end. Yeah. Um, I think the, uh, the, the other thing that makes this movie really appealing to me and really appealing to kids. And I've, I've read one or two articles really long ago and I wish I could source them because I hate when people don't source things, but it, it is what it is. Uh, talking about one of the reasons why kids like stuff like Pokemon or talking about like dinosaur facts as kids is that uh, the idea of categorical knowledge is fairly easy for kids to process at a very young age and uh, typically ends up appealing to them. So being able to put yeah. stuff into categories uh, works really well. And they kind of have that built in with like, and it's uh, unambiguous, right? It's, I know this is this about this, you know, yeah. there's, there's no ambiguity there. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's basically gamified too. Cause it's like, oh, it's this dragon with this move set, um, uh, to appeal to a generation of kids who probably grew up playing Pokemon yeah, um, or Digimon or something of that sort. And are like, Ooh, I could collect all the dragons. That's and that's kind of what they do in the later movies. That's what fish uh, legs is in this movie in particular. Yes. He's walking around with his card saying, that's a class six Leviathan, blah, blah, blah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And, and there's definitely an amount of that that makes me love that really appealed to me about that, that I, I love that. I love clear cut lines. Um, I love when things are clearly defined and, uh, in a world and, and how to train your dragon doesn't fall into a black and white world very often. Normally it falls into a very like emotional world where people have to make these hard decisions. And, uh, there's like a wholesome family moment, um, where, yeah, we might not get along, but we're still family or something like that. Um, but it still appeals to have that bit of knowledge to, uh, to, to kind of fall back on. And it's a nice amuse-bouche to get anyone uh, interested in the deeper levels of the movie or the world of how to train your dragon is uh, those categories of dragons with cool abilities, which are all bigger and more impressive than in the books. I'll just, I'll just throw that out there. Uh, it's only in the last more few books where the dragons appealing. get really big. They start off pretty tiny. Interesting. Almost um, like well, dogs. They're, they're, they're hunting dogs in the first book. Okay. Uh, this is something I want to talk about, Alex, because I have a theory that animals, especially uh, non-real animals, but even other real animals in kids' movies are either dogs or cats. They either have almost exclusively canine or feline characteristics. Okay. And in these movies, the dragons, so, in the movies, what, do you, what, what, what team are you? Uh, they're mostly dogs. Really? I think they're very cat-like. They have, they have some cat, cat qualities. Um, but they're, when they get real doofy, they're, they're very dog-like. Yeah, and he the does way, that the sometimes, way they exchange but commands. I think of, yeah, I think of, I think of dragons kind of in general, I guess, as very cat-like. The way that they curl up usually yes. and, and do that and the way that they're very cautious, um, about things rather than energetically jumping into them. This is a whole tangent, but I've been yeah. thinking about it. And even just like watching other movies, um, Wally was on the other day and there's a cockroach in Wally that is definitely a dog. Um, but anyway, it's just an interesting thing to think about that. Those are the two easiest categories of behaviors for us to realize because well, we are surrounded by dogs yeah. and cats. We're surrounded by dogs and cats and and don't forget that these are made up creatures, right? So they, the people who design them are pulling from something and normally right. very consciously too. And I think I wish I but had looked up. But snakes and lizards aren't that design. interesting or endearing. 
they don't have very quick movements either. Yeah. Um, and and they don't have the same intelligent eye looking eyes that uh, that dogs and cats do. Um, so they dogs and cats tend to lend themselves better to animation. They're like you said, we're way more familiar with them because they're like the two most common pets, right? Um, but also, uh, you know, I think when they did the design for this movie, or at least it seems to me, I wish I had looked up something about the design process, but I guess I didn't. Too busy reading How to Train Your Dragon books. Um, they, I think they pulled from both. And I think the, uh, the parts where the uh, dragons are being ridden and the parts where the dragons are interacting with humans very directly, um, they are very dog-like. And I think when they're hunting um, or sneaking or fighting, they're very cat-like. I think yeah, they pull from those two that. handbooks very, very actively because there's a lot of movements that come to mind um, of, uh, or, or maybe specifically like, you know, think about toothless dragging that picking up a stick and then yeah. dragging it through the ground. That's a very dog-like uh, Yeah, dog-like I think the more he warms up, he gets very dog-like. But if you think of um, the Light Fury from the last one, she's very cat-like because she's so cautious and yes, yeah, and that's that's very much pulling too from the uh, the the idea we have that, that isn't totally inaccurate that cats tend to be fairly aloof and yeah. uh, compared to dogs who tend to be fairly personable and up in your face and I yeah. think they have the two sides all all the dragons have the two sides of their personality the open friendly one and the predatory feline one um, and they they kind of pull from either uh, either playbook as is necessary but I will say uh, with uh, and that's part of it. I do love the design of the dragons. They are so fun to look at. They are so different and variated. It's like different giant pieces of eye candy on screen. <laughs> just seeing these different like cool fantasy designs. For anyone who's a fantasy nerd, you just you love it. You love to see it. If you like Lord of the Rings, you love to see these different kinds of dragons and different kinds of creatures. And Some see of them are very much like bumblebees. Like They should not be able to fly physically. No, the Gronkle? <laughs> oh, God, no. No. Oh, my God. Horror Crow? Um, Fish Lake's Gronkle uh, is a vegetarian in the books. Oh my gosh. Uh, awesome. The only vegetarian dragon, actually. Um, it's the, uh, like, uh, Shark Tail. Yes, yeah, yeah. Fish are friends, not food. Uh, oh my gosh. Something like that. She spends a whole book stuck to um, uh, Fish Lake's head because she gets scared and won't let go. That's awesome. But... Oh, let's talk. Well, okay. Last thing before we move off of this one, because I think that the the climax of each of these films is is very interesting. The way that it scales up. Um, oh, it's gotta get bigger each time. Yeah, but the interesting thing is that it starts so big with this one. So that's something that I want to to touch on because, like you said, the dragons were small in the books, but here we go from once we get past kind of the, uh, you know, we're gonna make dragons our friends, and he gets his girlfriend to come look at the. Uh, she gets kind of on board with the dragons and then his dad's in danger all of a sudden. And then we get to this huge dragon um, that they have to defeat. And I'm also a little confused about which dragons is it okay to kill and which ones is it not okay to kill. (laughs) But, uh, but it's so interesting that this one gets so big, so fast at the end. And then it, like you said, it does have to keep kind of one upping itself, um, which is why I think that, Probably it's good if they kind of leave the series where it is, but we'll get to that when we get to the end. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. There are moments with very big dragons, but I will say it takes a few books to get there. Mm -hmm. I don't think you get to a... 
Well, actually, no. They there is a very large, two very large dragons in the first book that are the issue. Sea Dragonus Maximi, who um, wash up on the shore of the island and uh, cause a problem. And uh, but the way a lot of the conflict resolutions in the books tend to not be giant set pieces. Some of them are on occasion, but yeah, a lot of the resolutions in the book tend to be more like. Think about how like a legend or a myth would resolve itself, like because you you have to literally tell the story. It isn't a giant battle. It's not a visual feast. It's more like a lot of trickery, a lot of things falling in, uh, plans falling into place right at the right time. Um, and there's some of that for sure. It, they they incorporate that a good deal, especially in the later two, um, as the team gets more uh, coordinated and Hiccup gets more um, builds more and more uh, contraptions, essentially. But they mm. definitely the the blockbuster ending is something that is very 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 of the movies. I yeah. don't think you get to a, a blockbuster ending until the point where um, a giant fire dragon erupts out of a volcano in oh, um, nice. in book five six something like that. I'm just thinking it's it's kind of interesting that they went that far with it in the first one because you know you'd almost expect spend the first movie kind of contained like we're accepting the dragons in our little world. And then you go off and you find like this huge gargantuan, uh, dragon. And, well, but they I kind guess. of had to do that in the first one. Cause, cause it sets up that now toothless is the alpha or is that the second one? Am I mixing them up? Because, uh, yeah, toothless doesn't become the alpha in the first one. He becomes the alpha. One? I believe he comes, becomes alpha in a later one. All right. Well, actually, no, I think you're right. He does challenge the alpha in the first one. This is the other thing is there. There are points in the movies that get blurred because some of them are kind of similar. (laughs) The third act gets blurred in all the movies because the third act evolves into um, it kind of has a bit of Marvelitis in the third act where it doesn't matter what happened the rest of the movie. The end of the movie is going to have to be big and bright and explodey. So I think the first one is the alpha dragon because they find they find a nest in the first one, but then Actually, in the no, second one, the they have dragon. the two, the two big ones battle it out. Yeah. Cause the, that, the second one is when, uh, the other alpha dragon is being controlled by the warlord. Right. So, yeah. uh, that would be when, uh, toothless has to assert himself as an alpha. Uh, in the first one, they just have to defeat the big, uh, the big dragon. Like the first one is hiccup coming, uh, is hiccup learning to come of age, but in his own way, you know, he's going to have to become a Viking, but he can't become a Viking in the traditional way. So he's going to have to learn how to become a Viking in his own way. And that's what he does. And right. the second one, it's mostly about um, uh, him. Have, his, his father wants him to take over the tribe uh, as the chief now that everything's going well. And he doesn't want to. He wants to go have fun with his dragon. So he's going to have to grow up and take responsibility. But over the course of the movie as well, uh, his uh, dragon Toothless, who has a parallel story to, to him in each of the uh, films, mm-hmm. also has to learn to take responsibility and winds up becoming an alpha by the end of it. Well, I guess that's a good time to uh, transition into the second one, then. We should. We should. Jason, set it up for us. How to Train Your Dragon 2 from 2014. Years after proving that dragons and Vikings can live together, Hiccup and Toothless are caught at a crossroads. Hiccup is desperately avoiding the idea of succeeding his father as chief of the tribe. Meanwhile, a marauding warlord with a fearsome dragon army threatens Burke, forcing Hiccup to take one responsibility whether he's ready for it or not. 
All right, so the first one, I definitely wouldn't call the first film lighthearted, but this one, How to Train Your Dragon 2, gets uh, pretty dark. Uh, yeah. In fact, very dark. Uh, I was not expecting this movie to have any significant, I guess, spoiler alerts, uh, character deaths, but there are. There is a significant character death in this movie. Um, and uh, there's a family reunion as well um, that's fairly serious and... Uh, kind of deals with the idea of like an absentee parent um, and kind of reuniting with them in that way, as well as trying to grow up and take responsibility as an adult. Um, and also like there's lots of stuff trying to kill Hiccup for the entire movie. So they have to deal with that too. Yeah. All right. So what did you think of the uh, core storyline involving the family drama um, and the very big like, like, moments that happened jonathan were you were you buying it were you enjoying the uh the family storyline did you think they handled it well or did it not come off to you i think it works it's really interesting because uh hiccup's mom has such an interesting personality just because she's kind of the uh oh gosh she 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 fits on the fringe of some kind of trope but i don't exactly know what to call it like the the outcast or the castaway who's kind of just been out of touch with humanity for too long. Oh yeah. She's, she's very much an eccentric. Like she, yeah. she's got her, instead of Wilson, the volleyball, she's got an entire exactly. nest of dragons. Yeah. She, she talks to the dragons like people. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's interesting to see how that character connects with, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Stoic the vast, because they have to have this whole rekindling, but their personalities are so completely different. Um, and of course, this is where <laughs> this is where you get like the really um, kind of healthy and wholesome uh, tenderness in the family relationships and stuff. Because it's really cool to see how they portray them connecting and how this you know huge you know gruff Viking who's literally named Stoic kind of breaks down and falls in love with his wife all over again. Um, and they have yeah, their moment they where it. they dance and they sing and, and all that kind of stuff. I feel like that was a fairly bold choice, especially for like 2014, which maybe wasn't that long ago, but it felt like different than a lot of what you saw in terms of uh, family reunions um, or, or kind of like remixing that kind of strife where like one spouse leaves for a long time and you expect them to come back and there'd be this big fight and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, Essentially, I think what I'm what I'm getting at is a lot of Hollywood and a lot of um, television tends to be how can we milk as much drama from this as possible, um, and sometimes yeah, as opposed uh, to how could you leave? Why wouldn't you tell me? Blah yes. blah 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 blah. Yeah, yeah 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 yeah. You'd expect a lot of yelling or something like that, but I think they kind of made a bold choice by being like, no no no, that's not how this character would interact with this in this moment. The most interesting choice wouldn't be a big fight. The most interesting choice would be to see this big, gruff, strong guy who we've never seen do anything other than being big, gruff, and strong to be really vulnerable for a hot moment and be like, yeah. I've missed the hell out of you. Uh, you're alive. Oh my God. And then to see that reunion um, or to see like Hiccup excitement at seeing his mother and stuff like that. Uh, that was well, really Hiccup cool. had a lot of confusion before he got to excitement, which is also appropriate. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> for sure. I will say in the, in the books as well, uh, uh, his mother, who I don't think is named Valhalla Rama in the movies. I can't remember her name in the movies, uh, but her name in the book is uh, Valhalla Rama of the white arms and chunky thighs. 
Um, that's her name. Um, is also a kind of an absentee parent, um, who isn't around very much. Um, intentionally, she's always, she's always off questing. Um, she's essentially Uh, a workaholic, right? So, um, and, and there's, there's a point in the book where, uh, there's something very similar happens where, uh, she's, she's hunting her son, but she doesn't realize it's her, her own son. Um, and Hiccup's like, wow, I guess I really don't know my mom then. Um, cause I've, I haven't been around her and I haven't gotten to the resolution of that yet, but I'm excited to see, uh, see where that goes. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's, there's, uh, the same kind of like absenteeism and very interesting family drama going on. And I like how they, they kind of show a broken family trying to come back together in this movie. Um, and how the world kind of got in the way of that. And then yeah. um, how they had, how the characters had to essentially learn to live with the stuff that happened and move on and all that stuff. Um, I will say it is the world, the world, the way the world interfered and the antagonist interfered with the developing internal plot lines of the characters was very interesting and made for interesting moments. But the antagonists themselves in this movie are kind of dull. Um, yeah. They are more They're, so between the second and third movie, the the bad guys kind of fall more in line with actual Vikings in terms of Vikings basically being pirates. Um, but also they kind of they almost are the same in terms of motivation. They're just like in the third movie is a one up of the bad guy from the second movie a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most interesting thing about the bad guy is the idea that it's the evil version of Hiccup, right? So Hiccup's learned to live with the dragons right. in this uh, kind of symbiotic way. He's learned to train dragons, right? How to train your dragon. Boom. That's the thing. Um, but uh, the bad guy is a warlord who's learned to control dragons as well and lives with dragons as well. But instead of doing that out of like love or uh, care or compassion, he does that out of control and fear um, to, to kind of literally be a toxic relationship. Yeah. Uh, between him and these dragons to control them and make them do his bidding. And he wants to control all the dragons and he's uh, also sort of game, dragons. gamed the system. Cause in this one we learn about dragon pheromones, which is fun. Yes. Yeah. He has cheat code. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. He's drugging his dragons with pheromones. Um, but I think, I think the, that, that angle is fairly interesting. The character himself is kind of boring. He's just kind of big and screamy. Um, yeah. But he he works for what he needs to do, and it kind of serves the 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 idea of the 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 two opposing forces being like a healthy relationship with dragons versus a uh, toxic relationship with dragons. Kind of echoes well with like the healthy uh, the healthy relationship uh, that we see between the family members and characters in the movie. Yeah. Um, it's it, it's it's nice to see them all interact so positively, and even like Hiccup's friends and I guess girlfriend at this point are very uh, are very supportive and like good friends during the movie. And that's and stuff honestly, like that. his girlfriend kind of has that same arc between the second and third movie where she she has to learn how to be supportive of a leader and kind of be the the right hand man, if you will, for Hiccup and kind of boost his confidence as he's on this journey too. Um, oh yeah I will say though probably the most interesting new character is uh, Eric son of Eric or whatever 
Oh, okay, um, Harrington's character. Yeah, who comes in as a Eric as a dragon trapper, and then kind of gets converted to the the ways of loving the dragons. Um, how he learned to stop capturing and start loving the dragon. Um, but yeah, he's he's kind of fun, and and all, those characters who have their own kind of internal one eighty flip arc are always a little more interesting than the bad guy who's just like he's going down with the ship no matter what with his philosophy. Certainly. Um, And they, they do have some other uh, subplots going on. I think they start, was it the third movie where they start with everyone being in love with uh, rough Knight, or was that in this movie? No, I think they start that in this one and then she, She's all over oh, the new guy. Oh, and then she Eric. sees yeah, yeah. Snotlout and Fishlegs are fighting over Roughnut, and then Roughnut sees Eric Erickson and is like, "You're hot," yeah. um, and falls in love. She with was him. the most annoying of the <laughs> annoying side characters. Yeah, she she which is became not, a plot point in the third movie. Yeah, she is not a character in the book. She is new. Toughnut really? is a character in the books. Toughnut is Toughnut Junior in the books, uh, but in the movies, I guess they. Uh, doubled him out to be tough nut and rough nut the twins um which is a good expansion of the crew uh and then uh the other thing that i wanted to mention was oh stormfly is named in this this movie i don't think stormfly is named in the first one um but in this one astrid has a dragon named stormfly um who uh her analog in the book kamikaze not uh, Ash, uh, she's not named Astrid. She's named Kamikaze. She's from a different tribe uh, called the Bog Burglars instead of the Hooligans. Um, and is an expert uh, thief and escape artist. Um, both still with the blonde hair though. Has a dragon named Stormfly, who's a mood dragon instead of a Natter, who I think what I think Stormfly is in the um, in the movies. And the mood dragon essentially is the only dragon in the books that can speak Norse. So he can speak, she can speak the human languages and um, constantly lies all the time. So she's constantly changing color to purple, which is the color the mood dragon changes to when it's lying. You're literally yeah. becoming fish legs at this point. I'm getting lost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this, the books are really good. You, got, you guys should read them. There's, there's, a, there's a lot of fun there. Do recommend. All right. Um, yeah, I'm trying to, man, so many of the plot points between two and three kind of get uh, a little Jumbled? bit mixed. Yeah. Yeah. Two especially though. I mean, they have the, we have the the new thing with the with the I guess hive of the dragons that his mom um, is with. But see, this is where it's interesting because in the last movie, we killed the big dragon that was at the center of the hive because we woke it up and it got angry. Now, the the queen queen dragon is the good guy, but also there's another queen dragon that's being controlled and then they have to battle it out uh like battle of the titans um and then we and then this is the one where like you said uh uh toothless becomes the alpha and uh but it's really interesting that the alphas are kind of like a distinct thing from the actual dragons in this one so yeah that's a fairly strong like delineation they came up with in fact the whole concept of an alpha is kind of very movie based there's not a whole lot of that in the books. Yeah, it seems um, it seems like a, a MacGuffin just to kind of give us something to fight at the end. And then at the end of one, we have to defeat one. At the end of two, we have two of them fighting each other. And then yes. I, I think they did a good 
they made a good decision with how they kind of wrapped up three, which we're about to get into, because at some point you, you can only do dragons are in danger so many times. And I think that's the point of three. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Let's move on then to how to train your dragon, the hidden world from 2019. Jason, take it away. How to train your dragon, hidden world from 2019. Now the leader of the Burke Vikings, Hiccup and his fellow dragon riders do all they can to save every dragon in need. Yet the island of Burke can only hold so many rescues, and the Burke hooligans remain the only Viking tribe friendly to dragons. In fact, a group of warlords hires a deadly dragon hunter to assassinate Hiccup. Into the mix comes a female Knight Fury, and a chance for Toothless to lead a life of his own. Will Hiccup and Toothless find a way to make the world safe for everyone? Or is this the end of the line for Viking Dragon cohabitation? All right, Jonathan, this one, 2019 is a little more recent than I actually thought it was. I thought it was a long I know, it is very soon. But it was um, it was pre-pandemic, so that feels, that just makes everything feel longer away than it really was. slipped in there, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this one, I actually remember seeing this one in theaters. Um, this one is very much the epic visual feast finale with very oh, yeah. big set pieces throughout, even from the get-go. Um, New Hiccup dragon his, classes. Yeah, Hiccup and his, and his uh, crew have become, you know, crack dragon rescuers, rescuing all the dragons everywhere. And it's just become too much. Like, literally, the island of Burke is overstuffed with dragons, which is a very funny visual. Um, but it, it's kind of reckoning with this idea that I actually find fairly interesting for um, a hero story where it's like, you can't save everyone. Yeah. Uh, what what do you do when you can't save everybody? Um, so it, it's kind of like finding it's it's again it's a, a coming of age story about growing up and learning to let go of some things that's a necessary part of growing up and hiccup wrestling with that and for most of the movie not being okay with that and uh, because he's not okay with that almost getting a lot of people hurt um, yeah and then getting out on the other side. There's so, actually a lot of good things that are that are touched on in this one. So I think. Definitely, yeah, the the you have to kind of pick your battles at some point is is a big one. But there's also this idea where the dragons kind of come to symbolize uh, a crutch that Hiccup is using and that the, the Vikings themselves or the Burkeans are using as uh, like we said, the, the dragons have become their protectors. But at some point they have to learn how to protect themselves without the dragons. And that's the that's what they have to learn here is that. If you don't have your dragon with you, what are you like? You have to be able to define yourself beyond your your dragon um, and, you know, whatever that represents. You know, that's that's, again, kind of a symbol for just things that we rely on too much uh, that you have to be able to do without at some point. Um, and it doesn't mean that the dragons are bad, but they kind of find this resolution where there's there's a better place for the dragons to be that's going to be less dangerous um, and then it, I kind of love the uh, kind of skipping a little bit to the end, but it's it's almost a uh, classic sci-fi um, how the uh, the day the Earth stood still kind of thing where they just say once humans can learn to get along together, we'll be back, <laughs> which is kind of like just a classic sci-fi. The aliens came to teach us peace, but we weren't ready. Oh, for sure. For sure. I actually think that's the plot of one of their ongoing TV shows right now. Really? Which takes place, like, I think in the modern day and the dragons have come back. That's awesome. Or maybe or they need to come back to, the, to teach us some more. Yeah, I was about to say the modern day is a great example of that. But yeah. um, 
but yeah, yeah, no, this is a, this is a really cool, um, really cool finale. Very, again, very big, very dramatic. Um, I will say I, I do like the villain in this one, per, definitely better than the villain in yeah. uh, the second movie. And uh, I guess by definition, better than the villain in the first movie, because the villain in the first movie is a faceless alpha dragon. Um, yeah, the villain and, in the first movie was almost was almost just internal. It was almost Hiccup versus his dad more yeah. than anything. But in how to in, in this in the third movie we have this dragon hunter who's this very deadly dragon hunter, and in a lot of ways it's kind of like reattempting what they were doing with the um, with the villain in How to Train Your Dragon Two, where mm-hmm. the villain in How to Train Your Dragon Two is supposed to be like the evil version of Hiccup, except because he was so big and screamy, he came off more as like the evil version of Stoic. Yeah, of Hiccup, which so we already train, know that Stoic has some flaws to him. Yeah, and in How to Train Your Dragon in World, uh, the villain is much more. He's less. He's he doesn't really fight with his muscles. He fights with his brain. He's got yeah. uh, some dragons under his control. Um, he's he like a dragon he, Moriarty. Yeah, very much so. He's like the antithesis of Hiccup. He's very clever. He's very, but he's also conniving. He's very evil. He wants all yeah. dragons dead. He's, I think he says that at some point. Um, he's, but he he's, loves the hunt, too, in a very sadistic kind of a way. Yes. He's borderline the arch-villain of the books, Alvin the Treacherous. Um, he's not quite mustache twirly enough to be that guy, though. Um, he's also got too many parts of his body left. Um, there's a running gag as uh, Alvin the Treacherous is defeated in each book. And it looks like he's definitely died in some horrific way at the end of each book, like swallowed by a dragon or something. Uh, that he somehow survives. He always survives, um, but he always like loses a limb or like his nose or something, and like comes Captain back. Captain Hook to the max. Oh yeah, like the evolved form of Captain Hook. The point I'm at in the series, he's lost all of the hair on his body, his nose, um, one leg, and uh, one hand. Um, nice. I think maybe an ear or maybe not an ear. I can't remember. That's very um, piratey. Yeah, he's, he's very uh, scarred, <laughs> intensely scarred from yeah. his, uh, his failures against Hiccup. Um, but yeah, this, this guy gives me the most vibes that fall in line with that. Um, this movie also came out after that final series of books where the, uh, uh, that came out from 2010 to 2015 ish, I think, where uh, the movie, the books themselves get very dark and more grown up and kind of start to match the tone of the movies um, a lot more in their proportions and um, characters and uh, themes. Yeah. And the other thing with the villain, with him being, um, he's, he's less mechanical, but still the, the threat is very similar to almost like the Terminator where he's just always right behind you or, and mentally one step ahead of you. Um, Very threatening. And, and so there's there's also this theme that runs through it um, of you can't outrun your problems because that's kind of what they decide to do. Like, we're just going to leave. We'll just run far enough away and they won't be able to find us. And that ends up not being the case. Um, so there's there's a lot of these kind of classic themes that are worked in there. And then also there's, <laughs> to your point of, uh, toothless and hiccups stories being intertwined. There's also just kind of a subtle puberty storyline in the background as uh, toothless finds the light fury that he falls in love with. And hiccup is kind of facing imminent marriage and, uh, um, 
like fully taking on the reins of his father and leading oh, yeah. the tribe and having a family and all that kind of stuff. Hiccups, I think Hiccups 20 at the start of this movie too. Uh, they actually age that him up quite a bit. Sense. Yeah. yeah, it's probably mid mid late thirties and at the at the little epilogue bit. I I'm willing to bet he's he's thirty in the epilogue. They they people look older in old days. I bet he's thirty. <laughs> he's got yeah. he's got two kids. He's got two kids. Yeah. Yeah. Two kids years, and a they, beard, they, finally. In, in two in ten years you can have two children and a beard. That's possible. Yeah. You can do a lot of things in a decade. Um <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I do like the I do like the ending. The ending's very sad. It mirrors the books. Um, although I don't know exactly how they achieve that in the books yet. I just know that that's where it's headed because there's epilogues and prologues. It's all written in, in this, uh, it's essentially as if you, the books are written as if you had found the old memoirs of him, of Hiccup and he's writing them all as an old man. Mm. Um, so there's all these prologues and epilogues and he mentions in each of them that there's no longer dragons in the world. They've left or something's happened to them. You just don't know exactly how that is achieved. I do like that they they bring in another classic dragon myth, uh, which I don't I didn't actually find the origin for, but just the the classic edge of the map here there be monsters kind of thing. So they say the the dragon hidden world is somewhere beyond the the edges of our world, um, and they kind of make some sort of sinkhole type thing, almost like a hollow earth type deal. Um, yeah, very similar to that. And Jules Verne. Uh, yeah, very Jules Verne kind of thing, but that's it's kind of just a good way to throw throw in that nod to the way that they would put on old maps that put the the sea serpent out there, and if you if you travel your ship out too far, you'll get attacked by the by the dragons or by the monsters or whatever. Yeah, yeah, they actually uh, they they uh, they follow that in one of the books too. They do a lot of stuff in the books. I don't know if that sh- that shows yet. <laughs> but they do go off the edge of the map in one of the books and they almost get to America. <laughs> That's awesome. They throw in America. Uh, yeah, actually. And the reason is that one of the characters is poisoned and the only cure is the vegetable that shall not be named, which is the potato, which only grows in America. Ah, interesting. But they also end up on that boat quite accidentally. That one's a very good one. How to ride a dragon storm. Anyway, um, let's slide into overall notes. <laughs> Uh, and talk kind of about this series as a whole now. Um, so we already talked about a lot of the um, the the differences between the book and the movie. In fact, I've spent most of the podcast talking about that, um, mostly because I find the adaptation of the books to the movie to be really good, uh, just because you normally don't see something that's so heavily changed be good. Um, there's a, Well, there, <laughs> there are kind of two ways it can go. Either if you change it too much, you take something that's really good and you make it really bad, or you can take something that's really bad and make it really good. We've seen both. I think <laughs> Jaws is the flip, uh, but also Born was changed a lot, but both of those are actually good. That's kind of an exception. Yes, yeah. There's It's more the exception than the rule, certainly. Um, and it's just, especially in this scenario, um, in a world of children's animation where... Um, you know, stuff like the Trolls movie exists. It's nice to see a good adaptation. <laughs> yeah. We didn't even get into the whole thing. I think we've done it multiple times before, but, you know, the the children's film label, I mean, I think this this definitely falls into, it is geared for a younger audience, but yes. as with every time that we talk about quote-unquote children's films or animation, 
more broadly, which I think is even worse to label it. I mean, this animation never deserves just a pat children's label because you can make anything yep. in animation. It's a medium. Um, but this film is specifically geared for children. Thanks, but it Disney. does have, <laughs> but it does have a uh, a lot of application beyond that. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. And in fact, this kind of addresses uh, something that you hear a lot about children's content where uh, people are like, children's content in the late 20th century used to be be like really dark. <laughs> like, it would be like a fun story, but there'd be some dark tones and themes and like some people would die and the kid would have to learn about loss and stuff. And you don't see that as often anymore. And well, because Disney that, took all of Gr- all yeah, of Grimm and Disney. just sugarcoated it. But yeah. yeah, it's back. You see it occasionally in like a Pixar movie and or like the yeah. imaginary friend vanishes in Inside Out. Sorry, spoiler if you haven't seen that movie. <laughs> um, and people are like, oh my God, they got rid of a character. That's so brave. I'm like, I don't know. They killed somebody's dad in How to Train Your Dragon. So yeah. top that, he got smushed by like a actually boulder. a main, main character. Yeah. Yeah. Top that, Pixar. Yeah, but no, you're right. It does it does have um really deep themes. It has really uh really good wholesome heavy vibes themes that are handled like, yeah, in a family. mature, wholesome manner. Yeah. Like just healthy, normal growing up things, yeah. falling in love, just how to deal with friends, um, how to how to find your own place within uh your your family and just larger community you know finding your own strengths and weaknesses and being accepted for those and all that kind of stuff there's a lot that goes into these movies yeah yeah i would say the only thing that you don't really see the only thing i haven't mentioned yet that's a big difference from the uh the books into the movies is uh the tribal politics to a certain extent because they are broken out into different tribes and how those Mm. tribes interact with one another is pretty important it's not it's not are there really maps? Like, there are maps, uh, but okay. they're not. Like, it's not like Game of Thrones or anything like that. But like, there's more of an emphasis throughout the series in in like these tribes and the social order and things you do or don't do and things you do to like maintain a certain standing within the social order that play a part in the the plot. That kind of gets condensed down to a certain extent um, in in the movies, like. Uh, you know, there's a, multiple warlords who try to take over all of the tribes. Um, and you kind of see that in the uh, kind of almost like by default in How to Train Your Dragon 2. Um, but it's not as clear or something like that. Um, and that that's, again, is one of the good parts of the adaptation because they did not need that. They didn't need all, yeah. of, the, all of the tribe labels. Um, they just needed one group of Vikings and that was it. And they ran with it and they didn't really need to explain. I think every uh, movie starts with this is Burke. And then we redefine what Burke is in every movie as the, as the story progresses. Oh but yeah. yeah. Just, you're just getting a single community and you're getting all the people and how they interact, but that's all you can really handle when you're also trying to zero in on hiccup story for an hour and a half to two hours. Yeah, exactly. And I think, yeah, that's a, again, a good part of the adaptation is to be, is to say, we don't need this. It's, it'll distract people. Let's cut it. Um, and boom, there you go. Uh, condensing is good. Expansion is risky. Um, and oftentimes leads to filler, which yeah. a, again is one of the things that you see struggling in the current media landscape with stuff like 
TV shows that are movie concepts stretched out to eight episodes and suddenly there's five episodes of filler in there and people are like, that was kind of boring in the middle. Like, yeah, of course, they just made those up to to make some extra TV. The other thing that I want to mention, and I'm curious because I know uh, you're, you're such a camera head, Jonathan, um, is what do you think about the cinematography in these movies? Because there are those big action sequences, uh, but I, I would say that the most outstanding cinematography in these movies and the most beautiful scenes are, uh, and there's a couple for each movie, are the flight scenes, especially when it's just Hiccup oh, yeah. and Toothless, who just go out and fly and this feeling of freedom and enjoyment and the beauty of the landscape above the clouds. It's just gorgeous. Yeah, no, there's a, there's a lot of that. And there's also um, some really good just thematic visual storytelling. So in the first movie, uh, Burke is very brown and gray and stuff like that. And then once they accept the dragons into uh, into the village, then they, they've kind of just magically painted all of their houses different colors, but also the dragons are so vibrantly colored that the whole world just kind of feels more colorful and alive. And then we kind of get... And, and that color is is kind of just runs the whole gamut but then in the second movie we meet um the mom and we have a lot of the the kind of greens and emeralds and then the bad guys are very gray and and door and uh so you have a lot of visual um storytelling going on and they also do a good job of differentiating the uh flashbacks um which we didn't mention too much but they also do a really good job of showing the familial ties between Hiccup and, and his parents at various points. But those have a very distinct visual style, this kind of a sepia, but also in a way that you can't really shoot. It's it's kind of a, a visual distinction that can only be done through animation. It's, it's really cool. Um, so, yeah, but they they do a really good job with just the framing, with building the world, showing the, the scale of the dragons and the scale of the the different locations and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Their locations are beautiful. The Viking Isles, the archipelago are all beautifully depicted. Um, and it's just a fun world to get into that. They never, they never give you too many specifics. They always leave just a little bit to keep you curious about it. Um, it's just, it's a, it's a fun romp. It's again, it's a really solid trilogy. Um, it, they, you know, I'm not saying these are all five star movies, but they're all really solid and they're yeah. all really fun. And it's maybe some of the consistent, like most consistent level of storytelling that I've seen throughout um, a trilogy. The other one that I always pitch as like my, my really go-to trilogy is another DreamWorks one. And that, that's the Kung Fu Panda trilogy. Um, yeah. Which I kind of tack on as a caveat to this episode, like go check that trilogy out too. I know a lot of people have seen the first one, but I haven't bothered with the second two, but I'll tell you right now, they're worth the watch. They're really good. Um, and they're all really consistent throughout the, the teams on both movies handled it really well. Do recommend yeah. great watch. Those, yeah. Those will be fun. I think, I think since we've already done some Kung Fu movies, just, uh, to talk about the ways that they parody the genre and stuff like that. Cause those, those movies know what they're doing with the, um, what, what they're following in terms of film history and Kung Fu and stuff like that. Anyway, next time on the podcast, Jonathan, we are going to be talking about a boss Kirill Stame and his Coker trilogy, although he it's not an official terminology. He doesn't call it the Coker trilogy. It's something that um, kind of like the film community itself has kind of come together and labeled uh, out of his films because there's three movies that all take place in Coker, Iran on the shores of the Caspian Sea. Um, 
and are kind of connected uh, through this kind of meta level narrative to each other, um, but not officially, not officially named that. And even Kiarostami himself doesn't agree in calling them the Coker trilogy. He prefers his later two films in the sequence to be paired with another film of his that's very famous uh, to be called the Precious Life trilogy, although it's not really an official name either, but that's just kind of like the, uh, the central theme of that trilogy. But uh, as I continue to dance around the subject, Jonathan, what are those four movies we will be talking about? Yeah, so to try and clear it up, we'll talk about it more next month. But the Coker trilogy itself is comprised of Where is the Friend's House from 1987 and Life Goes On from 1992, also sometimes known as Life and Nothing More, um, and Through the Olive Trees from 1994. The last two of those, And Life Goes On and Through the Olive Trees, comprise the Precious Life trilogy with the last film we'll be talking about, Taste of Cherry, from 1997. Exactly. Makes sense? I hope it does. Uh, those are all four really good movies that we highly recommend watching, um, and uh, I think you'll have fun listening to us talk about that because there's a lot to talk about with them. And Kiarostami is an amazing filmmaker who not everybody has had the chance to watch a movie from him do recommend um all right jonathan what's going on over on the patreon yeah you can support us over on patreon everyone can join our digital community on discord for ongoing film discussion um and if you subscribe to the patreon you can also listen to the show live as we record it um and you also get access to the patreon podcast the bonus podcast uh of which the The bonus podcast the bonus podcast the last that's our thing I don't, i'm just like it's like a reflex at this point yeah, i don't um, know i don't know if you guys have listened to the bonus podcast you should but when when you listen to it we always start it off by going welcome to the bonus podcast, the bonus podcast. teaser because we're professionals um yeah it's it's much much looser over there um so yeah the last thing we talked about on that show was nanak of the north which is uh pretty much considered the first documentary and has a lot of um interesting uh, dialogue uh, and somewhat controversy a little bit, but just a, a very distinct part of film history in Nanak of the North. Um, and that the movie way- came out a hundred years ago. That's why we talk about it. We talk about movies that came out a long time ago. We talk about short films, we talk about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. The way, the way Nanook of the North um, actually blends narrative and documentary is weirdly similar to how Kiarostami blends narrative and documentary. I can see that. Okay. So it's relevant guys catch up before uh, next episode. It is relevant. You guys should go over to the Patreon. We do recommend it. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode. To find links to things that we talked about today, as well as a complete list of past episodes and all 425 films we have covered so far, visit thefilmlinks.com. You can also join us for ongoing film discussions on our Discord server. And to stay posted about upcoming episodes, follow us on Twitter at The Filmlings. Summaries for each of the films this episode were recorded by me, Jason Harden. You can find me on Twitter at TheBlueJay1994. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Uh, soon, coming soon is the, uh, how to dragon blog by Alex, where he'll give you all the hot tips and which books to read. And if the published order is really the order you should read them in. It is.
<laughs> it is. Oh, man. I can't imagine. I mean, you could mix them up, but there's really no point. Um, no anyway. Narnia controversies with the Dragon Books? Uh, well, the Narnia, the Narnia books are a little weird in terms of like... Chronology? Chronology. Yeah. Like, tell me, tell me you didn't plan on writing a series without telling me you didn't plan on writing a series. <laughs> Oops, there's another book. Where does Let's it go? go back I don't know. To the beginning of everything. Oh man, then you freaking Star Wars us at the end by writing a prequel. You're like, that one goes at the end, guys. You shouldn't read the prequel first. Oh god. Anyway, um, anyway, let's let's slide it. We're not talking about Narnia today. I don't know if we'll ever do the Narnia. Probably never. Movies. They have yet to release a solid run of those movies. Oh man, what a mess. Anyway, 